from Coimbra to Colombia, from Morocco to Miami. We tell the stories of the people who make the world of international law and business turn. We give glimpses into their lives and provide insights from their experience. These accounts come from every sector and every industry around the globe. Simply put, without further ado, I am Chris Campbell, and you're listening to Tales of the Tribunal, where practice meets personality. Hello and welcome back to Tales of the Tribunal with Chris Campbell, here to tell you another tale, another story from around the wide, wide world of international law, business, and dispute resolution. Listeners, I'm going to tell you this right now. If you weren't at ICC New York last week, you missed a great time, and we missed seeing you there. The panels were great, and there were a number of interesting ideas shared. But most importantly, I think it was just great to be in person and seeing so many familiar faces after such a long time. I've got a few more conferences that I'm attending before the end of the year, and I look forward to bringing you some great content from the field. And <laughs> you guessed it, we will have a fun little segment that we did while on the ground at ICC. So stay tuned for that. Also, before we get into it this week, you have one last chance to sign up for CAMCCBC Arbitration Congress, 9th edition, coming up on October 17th and 18th. So we've talked about it a number of times on the show, but it's an event you won't want to miss. It also will be in person with some hybrid activities, and there'll be some dynamic speakers from across the field. Don't miss the chance to be there in Brazil, and we'll include a link on our LinkedIn and in the show notes. All right, let's talk about this week's guest, who, if I'm honest, needs little introduction. He's a member of the Arbitral Collective that we talked about earlier in the season with Owen Lawrence, and he's a prominent commercial arbitrator and sports arbitrator as well. I'm speaking, of course, of Calvin Hamilton. Calvin is a friend and colleague and listener to the show, and it was great to have him in the digital studio for a conversation that I just know you're going to love. So... Sit back, relax, and enjoy my conversation with Calvin Hamilton. See you on the other side. Hello and welcome back to Tales of the Tribunal with Chris Campbell. I'm your host, Chris Campbell, here to tell you another tale, another story from around the wide, wide world of international law, business, and dispute resolution. Listeners, we are on the final stretch and what better way to start this final homestand than with a longtime friend of the show, um, a familiar name in the field of international arbitration, but someone you will know as Calvin Hamilton. Calvin, welcome to the show. Hey, Chris, thank you. I'm glad to be here. How have Great. you been? I've been well. I've been well, Calvin. And as the listeners will have heard in our intro just a few moments ago, um, you know, you have had this huge you know, continent-spanning experience in international arbitration. And we're going to talk about that a little bit. But before we jump into that, I'm going to start with those questions that we ask all of our guests. And that is, who are you, where are you from, and what do the people need to know? I'm a practitioner, been involved in arbitration for some time. Um, there's nothing special about me except if I can be sufficiently modest to say that I've accumulated some skills over the years that I am happy to impart and, and, and to work on matters where I can use those skills. 
I'm a family member. I'm a father, two daughters, uh, um, a wife. Uh, I love my family and um, would spend more time with them uh, were it not for my interests in, in, in international arbitration. Having said that, though, I will not sacrifice time with my family uh, much more than I have to uh, for, for anything, including arbitration. Um, where have I come from? Um, a simple background. I just happened to have been lucky. Uh, um, I found arbitration. It didn't find me. Uh, I saw an opportunity to do something uh, that I considered a lot of fun. Um, would I have done it for free? I don't think so, but uh, but it's it's a lot of fun nevertheless. And um, where am I going with all this? Well, hopefully, as far as uh, my mental capacities and my physical abilities allow me, I'll continue to work in the area. That's that, that's great. I, I like the the part that you said. You know, would you do it for free necessarily? No, I, I don't know anyone or many people in the field <laughs> that would. Um, but you know. You know, and I will say, for Calvin's being very modest, Calvin also speaks like, what is it, three languages? Uh, I speak Spanish and English comfortably, fluently. I dabble in French. I'm good at it. I, I can understand it. I wouldn't conduct proceedings in French. Uh, um, I think there are more qualified arbitrators uh, to do that, but I certainly can't follow proceedings in French. I would not write an award in French, but I will do so in uh, English and Spanish. Well, that is certainly more than I can do in French, Calvin. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so, okay, let's take a step back for just a second. So you found arbitration. Before we get into that, tell us a little bit about how you found yourself in the practice of law at all. Did you always know you wanted to be a lawyer? Um, I suppose um, it was and a mechanism pursued to which I can vent frustration, I can get into debates, I can speak to issues and have reasonable people respond to, to my points of view. I used to be a banker before I got into arbitration, uh, before I got into law. Uh, I found banking quite boring. Um, I no offense to all the bankers was, out there. Yeah, it was not, not at all stimulating, but I didn't recognize that the rule of law aspects of doing business were prevalent. And I thought, well, you know, maybe I could uh, continue in the business arena uh, through the practice of law. So I decided to uh, actually I I left uh, corporate banking and took a job with the legal department at the bank that I worked for. Um, mm -hmm. Because I knew the lawyers, I, the legal department, you know, they were friends of mine at that point. Um, and I started to work there as a legal assistant, um, dealing with many of the financial transactions, but from the law point of view. And I got an understanding of how the lawyers thought and approached these subject matters, which I couldn't have appreciated from the other side as a corporate lender. And, I, and that was more stimulating. That was more gratifying. Um, there was a debate going on. There was the occasion to, 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 to counsel uh, the client, which was the bank, 
Uh, so I like that. So I started to uh, do that, and then I left. Okay, that, that's a fascinating background. I mean, you might be the first banker or former banker, rehabilitated banker, we'll call it, uh, uh, that we've had on the show. So that, that's really interesting. Um, and so, so take us to the next step from there. You say start in the banking department in their legal, in their legal um, office or legal um, sort of team. Was it some specific case that came up that drew you to arbitration from there, or what was the, the exact causal sort of link? Um, I, I was at one of the institutions that I studied at was the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Massachusetts, it's part of Tufts University, administered by the Harvard program. Um, and during my studies, you may recall, or you may not recall, the Latin American death crisis in the 80s. And, and the conversation included whether or not private debt should be assumed by the public institutions. And I, I met a, a gentleman who was speaking to this question at a conference, and his name was Bernardo Cremades. And one of the things he mentioned that stuck with me was that, oh, we should arbitrate these issues because they're important issues. And, and I, I had heard about arbitration, but not much more. And I was curious as to how you can arbitrate public interest questions such as the Latin American debt. And so I asked him, well, how, how would that work? And he, what I assumed at the time, he, he said to me, are you interested in the subject? I said, well, well you raised it. Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm interested. She, he said something like, come work for me, which, which I assumed to be, he was blowing me off. So I said, okay, so uh, I was blown off. When I graduated about a year later, two of my colleagues in the program were Spaniards, and we'd become very fast friends. And I mentioned this incident to them, and they said, ah, they know Bernardo Cremades. In fact, they didn't personally know and Their fathers knew Bernardo Cremades. And uh, that I should come to Spain and hang out for a year or so, travel through Europe before I take a job at one of the prominent New York law firms, which I'd already been hired. Um, and, um, you know, you can meet Bernardo again, and you can ask him the question. And I did that after some thought. I did that, and um, I went to see Bernardo Cremades, and he remembered me. And I, and I was blown away by that. He said, oh, you're the gentleman from, uh, who wanted to know about the Latin American debt from, uh, and, and then he flundered a little bit, and I said, the Fletcher School. He said, yes, that's right. And he said, um, are you interested in work? I said, well, I'm here for a year. I would do, like to do something meaningful. And he picked up the phone, called one of his partners, introduced me to the partner, and said, Calvin is going to be with us for a year. And that was it. And so I found out then, not only was he going to answer my question, but that he was one of the prominent arbitration practitioners in the world. And, and, and his firm was the go-to firm in Spain for transactions and, in particular, international arbitration. And so uh, I landed on my feet. So you landed on your feet and that, well, not only did you land on your feet, it sounds like that was the start of not only making your transition into arbitration, but, you know, sort of a list or a sort of um, an item by item that would take you deeper into it. Oh, the, the, you know, that would basically start you on this path that, you know, now years and decades later, I mean, is, is, is deep, one of the marquee things that you're known for is experience and background in diversity and international arbitration, breadth of experience. 
Absolutely, absolutely. As I mentioned, the firm was also a transactions firm, a commercial, a business firm, business practice. And so at that time, this was in 1985, end of 85, I started working at the Cremades firm in 1986, January, the beginning of January 1986. And at that time, Spain had just joined the European community at the time it was referred to. And, and there was a lot of um, um, foreign direct investment coming into Spain at the time. And a lot of these transactions um, consisted of mergers and acquisitions, distribution agreements, those sorts of business transactions. And a lot of those transactions uh, came to the firm. And so I got to see the business aspect uh, of, um, of, of Spain. And uh, of course, we were in a position also to counsel to include arbitration clauses in these contracts. So, so it was sort of a double whammy. I got to see the transactions. I was involved in the transactions early on. And then we also got to know the transactions sufficiently so to be able to, to, to include the appropriate um, dispute resolution clause. So that um, for the client, um, you know, it was a win-win situation. They, they, they not only got good legal business counsel, but they also got uh, the advice of international arbitration practitioners to, to include that appropriate clause. And so, you know, what we've talked about so far, what you're just describing there, is is your life as a counsel, right? More so than um, your work as an arbitrator. What what was the the, the linchpin? What was the the flashpoint that led you to say, I I can make this transition. I can make a shift from counsel to arbitrator. What was that? What was that uh, sort of thought? Actually, actually, it was an evolution. Um, um, you know, I began to after I became admitted to the, the Madrid bar, which was about maybe four years later. Hmm. Um, so this was about uh, maybe 1980, 1990, 1991. Uh, I became admitted to the bar. Um, up until that time, I was actually a translator because I wasn't admitted to the bar in, um, in, in, in Madrid, so I couldn't hold myself out as a lawyer, nor would the firm hold me out as a lawyer. Uh, I was a transact, uh, an, uh, an, interpret, uh, an interpreter, but I was able to help the Spanish lawyers to understand the common law concepts of things like fiduciary interests. Mm. Uh, and legal and beneficially beneficial orders and these sorts of um, concepts, nuances which did not translate directly into the civil uh, civil law. Oh, right. And so you had to articulate in the civil law the concept, the civil law, the common law concept. And so I would help with trying to have the, the, the Spanish lawyers understand what the common law lawyer wanted in the transactions in terms of reps, warranties, and all these different things. So I was able to do that. Uh, and so during that time, you know, I would translate and the likes. And then 1980, 1991 came around. I felt sufficiently comfortable during, after those four years, to sit for the bar. Um, I did that successfully. And then I started to actually... Um, be a lawyer and be part of teams working on transactions. One thing led to another. I became, I began to assume more responsibility as a transactions lawyer. 
uh, that acumen all would, uh, you know, if the disputes arose, then they would ask me to run the arbitration. Uh, uh, and I, I began to do that. So I sort of transitioned from transactions council to, uh, to the arbitration council. Uh, I did that for a number of years, left um, um, the Cremades firm, and I went to begin the, the arbitration practice at another uh, major law firm in, in, uh, in, in Madrid. I did that for eight years. Then I started my own practice. By the time I started my own practice, I had been appointed a couple of times previously as an arbitrator in small matters. And that is how it actually happened. Then I started to get bigger matters. I started uh, to receive uh, better appointments, better, uh, more, more, shall we say, um, uh, complex disputes. I was appointed, uh, and that's 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 how it happened. So it was a it was a process, and I think a necessary process. People ask me, how do you become a successful arbitrator? And I I do believe that my um, my process, my evolution, is the way to go. Now people have jumped into arbitration as arbitrators and have done those successfully. I, 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 I'm sure that that could be done. It has been done. But, but, but I, like, I like my way better because I got to understand the council side. And as an arbitrator, I get to understand exactly what, what, uh, what motivates council. What, what are they looking for? How do they want to be able to represent their clients? And, and, and as a tribunal, to the extent that I could accommodate that, I do. Absolutely. And I think what you've said there and what you've outlined is exactly what we talk about on the show so often. It's mm. not as if, you know, um, you know, something magic happens and someone waves a wand and all of a sudden you wake up with a, a career in arbitration or work up as an arbitrator. Oftentimes, more often, it's a process, as you said, getting involved a little by little, making um, small steps. And then eventually you have the experience, you have the contacts, you have the positioning in order to make that jump. And it's, it's good to hear mm. That, um, that that sounds like that was your case too. Do you also, uh, you talked about your experience as an arbitrator. Are you also active in mediation? Do you do mediation as well? No, I don't, I don't. Uh, I, I have been involved in mediation with us counsel, uh, but I don't do it as a standing mediator, I mean, essentially for the reason that I'm not trained as a mediator. Um, and I believe um, parties can do much better by appointing somebody else who is trained as a as a mediator than appointing me. Yes, it's that simple. Well, sure. And well, um, you know, I, I guess the next question obviously comes to mind is over the past several years in particular, you know, with amendments to different sets of rules to sort of this mass adoption of virtual hearings amongst a number of other changes, have there been any particular changes or developments in the international arbitration landscape that have caught your eye or caught your attention? Well, I think you, you, you just alluded to one of them that, that I was pleasantly surprised at the, at the alacrity pursuant to which the community has adapted to the virtual platform. If I'm honest, I was surprised uh, with the quickness with which we, we, we have adopted. Uh, uh, but happy that, that we've done so. So I think before the pandemic, if you had said to me that we will move to virtual, uh, the virtual platform 
with all but very complex matters. Uh, I use the complex advisedly. Uh, uh, I would have said, well, you know, you know, there are a number of issues with that, including the evidence part of it, the, 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 the whole cross-examination, the integrity of witnesses, all, all these different things that, that are relevant, that are relevant, but that has, the virtual platform has, has dealt with, and I think adequately, uh, 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 in terms of protecting due process and fairness. So that's, that's uh, one of the areas that I think I was happy to see. Um, I'm happy to see that tribunals are now more open to accepting responsibility and increased capacity to decide matters like oh, immunity of arbitrators, like corruption issues, where, whereas before they were reluctant and they would kick the can down the road. I think tribunals are now um, understand that they are equipped to, to deal with those issues and have been uh, dealing with those issues. One of the areas that I think will be upon us, if not already upon us, is arbitration in the metaverse, yes. which is which is something that I think maybe as 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 a, a, a present a normal, maybe not in my lifetime as an arbitrator, but uh, I'd be happy to be wrong with that. But certainly with 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 the younger generation, uh, the whole metaverse thing makes sense. Uh, particularly if we approach it from the context of uh, what is effective and efficient for arbitration and resolving these issues. I have the benefit of <clears throat> uh, of reviewing on YouTube uh, the University of Ottawa. They, they conducted uh, 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 a boot in the metaverse, and it was fascinating uh, what they were able to do. I mean, there there is work to be done to 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 improve about different on different things, but it is something that will be with us in the very short future. Yeah, the future. Um, the future is now, right? Um, yeah. You know, we had an episode just a couple of weeks ago um, with Lizzie Chan, who has been very active in uh, metaverse disputes and arbitration in the metaverse, and it still is something that um, I'm not sure I quite understand understand it all but i mean it, it sounds very interesting very exciting very futuristic yeah. i guess yeah well go go to go to youtube and if you put in uh university of ottawa boot uh in the metaverse or something like that uh, i may have gotten a little bit glitched around but something along those lines you, you you'll see it it's it's fantastic very good very oh. real well that was and that was going to be my next question is what what you anticipated or thought you might see um, next in the field. And I think you're right. I think we will continue to see the adoption of this sort of technology yeah. Um, yeah. for utility, for, you know, um, for convenience, all those types of things. Um, you know, one thing that I obviously uh, could would be remiss if I didn't mention uh, having you here in the digital studio is back in the early part of the season, we had um, Owen Lawrence from Arbitra um, on right. the show. Um, right. And for those of you that don't know, um, Calvin is part of Arbitra. He's part of this fantastic collective. Can you tell us a little bit um, about, well, one, briefly, I guess, uh, maybe a, a 20, 30 second about what Arbitra is and then um, about how you got involved and what your experience with them has been like? 
Oh, well, arbitrage, it's a, it's a wonderful business model, I think. If you're familiar with the English concept of chambers, it's, yes. it's essentially the same thing, except that we are only arbitrators, uh, which, which is fantastic. Uh, it takes away things like conflicts and all these different things that you, you, you encounter. And then, of course, the whole idea of chambers uh, is an English concept, and then much of the world, they, they really don't get it. Uh, how can you not be conflicted out if you share in space and you share it? And, and the management team at, uh, at Arbitra, uh, Rachel and Debbie and Ben, uh, they do a wonderful job in keeping us together, keeping us honest, keeping us on the radar of a lot of the different potential um, clients that would need arbitrators. Uh, Arbitra, Arbitra would actually uh, um, counsel uh, potential clients about uh, appropriate selections of arbitrators. Uh, we have a, a very broad roster of people from different backgrounds, uh, cultural, ethnic, uh, the whole diversity phase is, is, is covered at Arbitra. If Arbitra and the list or the roster doesn't uh, meet the, the the profile that the client might be looking for, I think um, Arbitra will offer to try to find that person outside of Arbitra, Arbitra for the client. So and, and that is free for the client. So so there's no reason why you shouldn't want to use Arbitra. Uh, I think it's a great business model. Uh, we've got very very competent uh, staff as our management team. They've been doing. Um, this sort of stuff for years at chambers. Uh, and so they know the various jurisdictions, they know the people who are normally looking for arbitrators, and they're able to, to approach those uh, persons, companies, uh, clients, to, to offer our roster uh, of, of uh, potential profiles. Well, that's right. And, and so when it sounds like you've got a positive experience, it sounds like something that has been, um, in your mind, success and is going in a productive uh, direction well, well yes I, I as, as i said um it's sort of a one-stop shop for people looking for the appropriate arbitrator and we work in all jurisdictions uh around the globe so that uh we know those people we know those institutions pursuant to which the rules of the arbitration may govern uh or the arbitration institution may govern and so we're comfortable uh working uh, with those institutions and in those um, um, regions or jurisdictions. And I think Owen and the team uh, uh, are tested uh, in many of those uh, jurisdictions. Sure. Um, I guess less so in terms of like uh, industry-wide shifts, but is there anything that we can expect to see from Arbitra or that we should be watching for in the, next, in the coming years? or? Um, is kind of just uh, continuing to grow and expand, and, and we'll, we can watch that. Well, well, well again, I, 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 as I said, um, the business model is such that what we do is we, we advise and we counsel, uh, we assist parties um, uh, in selecting or at least uh, uh, providing a list of uh, potential um, profiles for the parties to select from. Um, that's what we do. That's what we'll continue to do. Um, we have the ability to offer physical premises, uh, hearing space, and that, the, those uh, sorts of infrastructural um, um, aspects to 
um, the client because we are located in uh, physically in the structure uh, of IDRC, uh, which offer hearing space and, and all the different uh, amenities um, needed for international arbitration. So we, we, we're able to do that for you. Um, uh, clients can get discounts if indeed they were to select arbitrators from um, our roster and use the IDRC premises uh, for these these matters. I, I know there is a convenient convenient uh, um, uh, between the two institutions. I you would have to speak to Owen a bit more to elaborate on that. But I think those are the things that we are able to offer. We are we go around the globe. Uh, trying to raise the profile of Arbitra and its members. Um, we were just in ICA, we'll be at the IBA in, in a month or so, um, and we'll be, we're constantly in Asia, uh, we'll be in um, the Middle East uh, doing the same thing. So, so people know us already, uh, people know the, our members, uh, and so, you know, the legitimacy is is there the legitimacy of the list the roster of arbitrators is, is there and it's just the question of um you know listening to clients for whatever value added they think they would need in addition to what we offer to see whether or not we can accommodate that but i think as it stands um arbitrators doing a wonderful job in, in satisfying the needs of, of potential clients sure no, that's great and that, that's good news to hear it's something i've been following since y'all launched it's been great to, to watch uh, the collective grow, and uh, folks like yourself and Owen and um, and, uh, and uh, others join on to the, the group. So I'm excited to see how it continues to develop. Yeah. Um, okay, let, let's let's talk a little bit more uh, more broadly about um, your arbitration your arbitration experience. Are there any examples, and you don't have to give us names or anything, um, of you know effective but then also ineffective sort of uh, representations by, by counsel. Anything that you see that like, ah, this is something that young practitioners should remember, um, it's do's or don'ts, anything like that? I think it, it, it's important um, to be culturally aware in the event of international arbitration because parties may be from different uh, cultures. I think it's, 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 it's important to be respectful of the process, respectful of the parties, respectful of the tribunal. Uh, I've, I'm sitting on a tribunal right now where I, the parties are anything but respectful for the tribunal's time. They're constantly late in, uh, in, in, in responding to, to requests from the tribunal. Uh, they're they're, they're not reading the tribunal and its concerns, uh, I think, uh, correctly. Uh, I'm not so sure what the reason is, except it's not the case where one party is doing it, it's the case where both parties are doing it. Uh, and I, I, I do believe that, you know, that does not sit well with, with, with the tribunal. Uh, we graciously, try to get them to understand that indeed uh, we would like to see an improvement in, in, in their responses, in their time for responses, with the lame excuses for failing to respond at a particular time. And um, 
so far we haven't seen it. So to young practitioners, I would say uh, the first thing is uh, be respectful not only of the culture, but the, the, the opposing parties, but also with the tribunal's time, uh, which includes the other parties' time. Uh, uh, also, that you have to be able to read the tribunal. Um, the tribunal is there in most cases. You know, tribunals may be wanting in this respect too, but in most cases, the tribunal is clear with respect to what it wants, where they see deficiencies, how do they expect these deficiencies to be properly covered. You need to be able to read those those issues. Tribunals will articulate the areas that they they have they they want additional uh, um, information about a particular aspect. I think the wholesale one size fits all with respect to submissions, with respect to copious documentation, with respect to various rounds of of, of, of evidence. I, I I believe tribunals are becoming tired of that. Uh, the, the, the whole introduction of this word complex in the arbitration proceedings, for me, it's euphemism for saying that they want to complicate matters with additional rounds of all kinds of documents which aren't relevant because the tribunal will decide the matter on a limited amount of the information presented to them. Um, I, I I'm all for things like uh, limits to submissions, page limits. I'm, 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 in, I'm in, in, in favor of let's see whether or not we need additional rounds, but uh, and that would be that would depend on the proceedings as they develop. Uh, I, I, I like to use skeleton arguments. Um, to help the tribunal and the parties to understand where we're doing. Um, summary judgment issues, I think that should be employed more by tribunals. Tribunals have to be able to take the lead on a lot of the, the matters in proceedings. Uh, it, it is true counsel um, can be wayward, but I do believe from pro by proper direction, uh, in most cases, counsel would fall into line and we would get the proceedings properly done and, and, and effectively and efficiently done. But I think, uh, coming back to your question, what is it I would counsel pra uh, practitioners or young um, um, persons breaking into the field, pay attention to tribunal, pay attention to the signals, be respectful uh, of, of the different issues that arise in, in international arbitration, civil law versus common law aspects of a set of proceedings uh, are important. You need to be versed in those uh, areas. Uh, you don't need to be an expert on civil law or if you're from a common law lawyer, but know that they, there can be differences and, and areas of, 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 of contention. Uh, don't assume that the matter will be conducted fully and and exclusively on the, the common law precepts uh, that indeed there might be other relevant aspects which are more akin to civil law and I think you need to be conscious of those issues. No, I, I think that that's, that's all, um, you know, it might sound very, you know, obvious or simple, but I think that I think that it's very easy for a counsel in the midst of things to forget those, <laughs> those tenets of remembering mm -hmm. who you're making an argument to, who you're trying to persuade, 
what's going to be persuasive to them. So um, one of the things that you mentioned uh, that, that pricked my ear there, Calvin, was this, this concept of complexity. You know, you see it as sort of a an amorphous term, we'll call it. Um, and it does sort of feel like this excuse for making arbitration more more litigious. And when I say that, I mean arbitration more like litigation or formalizing some of these things and making it, you know, what I, what I say and what people have heard me talk about and complain about is litigation 2.0. Um, and I think that's very dangerous. I think that that's a big risk to the international arbitration community um, because at the point when those two things sort of reach a singularity or reach where they're basically the same thing, you know, you have to wonder, will clients or users continue to use arbitration? Um, I, I think, yes, I think um, the process has become too litigious. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, <laughs> I've been involved in, in arbitration long enough to remember that we used to deal with inter in investor state arbitration and matters. Uh, we would refer to them, for example, concession agreements back in the old days. Uh, and one of my very first forays into investor state concession agreements, commercial agreements, in effect, it was an ICC case, was the Vintischal versus Qatar uh, arbitration, which was a major arbitration, and I can mention it because it's public. Uh, and this was in the 90s. And it was a huge arbitration. Uh, and it dealt with um, concessions uh, in Qatar, which Vintishal alleged that they were not able to explore in a timely manner, essentially because part of the concession was exchanged for a new concession, except that the time wasn't extended to comply with the contractual obligations to develop that, that, that concession. And, 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 and indeed, they did. They, they were supposed to find petroleum and, and oil and gas, and they only found gas. And, and so there were all these seismic studies and the likes um, that were created over a 31 period. Um, and, and, you know, so in today's world, that would be complex. That would be huge. Uh, and we dealt with the matter. The word complex never arose, except let's deal with the issues. And we dealt with the matter, and I think in the space it was about two years, just over two years, and we res and the matter was to award. There was a preliminary award, and then there was a final award of jurisdiction uh, uh, and, and and the merits, and uh, and, and including in, in quantum and the whole bit. But the, the the lawyers there were effective. There were the tribunal was efficient. There was respect for the process. There was no, you know, playing to the audience. There was no, and, and there, you know, there were issues that in today's environment would have sidetracked the main issues and raised all kinds of corruption issues and all sorts of different issues, recusing of arbitrators all those different things in today's world. Same set of facts, 
same set of facts and circumstances that were resolved most effectively and efficiently by the tribunal then because the parties were respectful of the process. The parties had a job to do and they did it effectively and efficiently. That's not the case today. The environment has changed. And, I, and, and, and all of that to say that um, we, we, we've, gone, we've moved away from what our mandate is uh, and, and what we should be doing as uh, to resolve these issues. Uh, we're calling them all kinds of different things now <clears throat> with the understanding that that allows us to 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 become more litigious and relaxed. It's, it's for me it's shocking the amount of challenges without merit to mm -hmm. arbitrators. Uh, the amount of irrelevant issues, irrelevant to the point, to the issue that need to be resolved by the tribunal. You know, issues related to corruption that have nothing to do with the main proceedings, nor do the questions of corruption affect the arbitration agreement. So that there is no need to burden the tribunal with that matter. Uh, you waste time doing it. The tribunal would eventually say the set of circumstances where the, where, the, where the agreement is not threatened by the corruption issue, the tribunal will not deal with it. The tribunal will move on to deal with the questions uh, put before them with respect to the merits of the dispute. Um, that case I mentioned, the Vintishar case, at the end of the day, with all the seismic studies, with all the different main issues, it came down to unjust enrichment. Mm -hmm. That was the question pursuant to which the tribunal decided the matter. The Qatar was unjustly enriched by all the seismic studies and the conduct by, by, by Vintishaf. And it was, it was that. It was that. <clears throat> yeah, but anyway, so, so yes, I do believe um, the, 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 the atmosphere has become too litigious. And uh, I don't know what we do to pull that back, except that I think tribunals need to understand that they are capable, they're capacitated to, to deal with issues that they perceive to be outside of their mandate, uh, that if they look to the case law at the seat of the arbitration, they can best be guided by what they're able to do. And as long as the seat of the, arbit the, 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 the arbitration, the case law allows them to exercise their franchise and mandate, they should do that. I think that's well said. And I think that's a, a great sort of punctuation slash exclamation point to end uh, this phase of the conversation. Uh, Calvin, as, as you shift a little bit, I guess the first question I would have is who have been some of the guiding forces or impacts or, or things that have shaped your career? Are there any particular influences that you um, would cite to? Um, I think the fact that I, I developed an expertise for a jurisdiction that was not mine, in other words, a, a civil law jurisdiction, that, that's been very helpful in balancing my 
understanding of the various interests that arise in international arbitration. Two, I grew up grew up in an environment. I'm speaking of grew up in, in uh, as an arbitration lawyer, uh, arbitrate arbitrator, in an environment where the institution of arbitration was practiced uh, by very competent professionals, uh, led by the gentleman I mentioned before, Bernardo Cremades. Uh, but in addition to Bernardo, there were people that, you know, they ate, slept, thought these issues. I remember the yearbook, the Ica yearbook. We were, uh, there was uh, one of my colleagues, Angel Tejada, he was the rapporteur for uh, Spain for the yearbook. And back in those days, there was no automated system to be able to download cases from the courts. You had to physically go to different courts and ask the secretary of the courts whether or not there were arbitration-related litigation matters, and if so, uh, whether or not we could have copies of judgments and those sorts of things. And that's how we contributed to <clears throat> the ICA yearbook. And this was the end of 80s, early 90s, when this was developed by Pierre Sanders. Uh, I, I had the benefit of, you know, being around, I carried Bernardo's bags and the likes, you know, as a young lawyer, when they were discussing competence, competence and, 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 and separation, uh, separability issues you know, to try to address a particular set of circumstances that 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 uh, frustrated the institution of arbitration, you know, the, the constant, you know, illegality of the contracts and whether or not that, you know, how would that affect the proceedings, uh, you know, should the proceedings be stopped while these issues are being uh, discussed well they came up with this concept the concept of separability and competence competence but I I, I, I I had the privilege of listening to those discussions as I sat in the back of the room someplace by a number of prominent persons at the time um, and that, that was that was wonderful uh, that that influenced me in the sense that you get to see how how you introduce or you affect fundamental matters, issues uh, with solutions and then how do you identify stakeholders to go out and sell these potential solutions or listen to feedback with respect to solutions that you're proposing, how best to, 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 to address those and, and, and understand that one jurisdiction can be night and day with respect to the understanding in another jurisdiction. So you need to accommodate those sorts of things. So I think, uh, you know, I had a good mentor. I, I was a, in a good place. Uh, I was having fun in Madrid. It's a lovely city. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a national of Spain now because I've been living there for 32 years. Uh, and uh, and it's, it's just great. So, you know, a lot of my colleagues outside of the law firms that I've developed a relationship with, um, uh, over the years are continue to be my colleagues and I continue 
to be able to do that. We worked on the Club Espanol de Arbitraque. It's one of the founding members for that. But we've done a wonderful job, not only in Spain and the Iberian Peninsula, but also in Latin America. And so that 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 that's also a, a great a great achievement. That's well, and there is a lot there, um, and I think um, you know, again, as we started sort of the conversation with, and I'm sort of coming back around to, in full, is yes, I think your experience across different jurisdictions, especially one that wasn't your own, um, has been huge, and it, it sounds like you had the opportunity um, at the right timing to to sort of capitalize on the, those advantages. Um, a little bit more of a, a less arbitration-related question, uh, potentially, I guess. Uh, what kind of books are on your bookshelf right now? What are you reading? Uh, what am I reading? Submissions. I have this very bad habit of starting books and putting them down. Okay. And then picking them up again. Okay. So one of the books that I've started a while ago and put down and I picked up again because of what's going on in the Ukraine and what is going on with the with the fallout from the Ukraine in the in the oil and gas industry is blowout by by um, Rachel Maddow. Yeah, is, uh, you know she gives a uh, ball by ball commentary of of the oil and gas industry, uh, not only in the U.S. but you know in Russia and, and, and places around the globe. Uh, and so the, the, it provides an additional understanding of how um, politics can affect, uh, you know, uh, issues of supply, uh, uh, you know, supply and demand and, 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 you know, what is going on in Europe and how are they going to be affected by uh, the, the decrease of the supply of, of gas. So that, that, that's one that I've picked up again. Another one that I've picked up again is a book about the Caribbean Commonwealth. Actually, it's 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 it was a commission that was uh, put together to determine how to how the Caribbean, the Commonwealth, the uh, Caribbean Caricom should move forward. And it's a, it's it's called a time for action, and and it it, it includes a lot of different proposals uh, about what. CARICOM and the Commonwealth Caribbean should be doing to, to further advance their joint development. Um, for example, the, the, you may have heard of the Caribbean Court of Justice, the CCJ. That was one of the recommendations that came out of uh, uh, Time for Action, this, this, this commission that was chaired by Sridhar Ramphal, who also was the Secretary General of, of the Commonwealth during the time when they were trying to free Mandela and all, all the different non-aligned nations in the 1977, around that time. Uh, so he was the head of this this commission, and he came up with a number of, of recommendations, including the CCJ, and, and including a supranational institution like, like, like the European uh, Commission come Union, uh, which was not accepted. Uh, but I, you know, there are reasons why that was going to happen, but that's unfortunate. Uh, but but I, I've picked that up again in Russia because I think it's become relevant again, particularly with the climate change issues, with with the advent of the uh, the pandemic. It it has demonstrated those phenomena, the, the shortcomings of the infrastructure that we now have. And, and I, I just wanted to dust off a time for action again because I think 
a number of the proposals there are relevant. So, so those are maybe two of the books that I that I'm looking at right now. Okay, and how about music? What kind of music are you into? <laughs> uh, I like reggae. Uh, reggae. I like, okay. I like calypso. Uh, the soca I can take in doses, uh, and, and depending on my mood. Uh, but essentially, I like I like rhythm and blues. I like jazz. I, you know, the different genres are appealing to me. I'm not a big fan of rap. Uh, I'm not a big fan of uh, the hip hop uh, culture, except that uh, I have no choice but to try to understand it because I've got daughters that are <laughs> of that generation. So, you know, you can't help but hear it in the house. Uh, sure. And I'm told, you know, daddy, you're just not with it. But it's it's interesting because, you know, rhythm and blues and soul. You know, if you listen to a lot of the hip hop thing, you know, the background music are these songs. Yeah. And my my daughters would come to, ah, oh, daddy, listen to this, you know, like, and I said, well, but but that is my music. That is Marvin Gaye. What's going on? That is, you know, and they say, oh, come on, that's not so. And of course, I'll play it for them, and they said, oh, okay, yeah. okay, all right, yeah, you know, kind of thing. But anyhow, so yeah, I like. I like if I want to relax. I like I like reggae. I like uh, uh, calypso. I like calypso because of the, the double entendre that 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 day the the, the calypsoians poke fun at politicians, and it's, yeah. it's an argument for for criticizing uh, politicians in the region. And I think I think that I think that's well, and it's always you know more than there there seems. And you know, and to wrap, I mean, I think there's a, a such a wide spectrum, right? I mean, there's artists that you know, can have a lot of hidden meaning, have a lot of political message to their um, to their words, and there's some that's a little bit more just kind of flashy, you know, just pop music. But I mean, I think it's uh, some artists I really like too. Um, so, so I get a little bit of both perspectives. Mm -hmm. um, Calvin, we are at the end of our time together. Um, shout outs or any uh, final thoughts for, for folks uh, that are listening at home? I, I think arbitration, mediation, as dispute resolution mechanisms, uh, are appropriate for dealing with our uh, interdependent world economies uh, with the differences that arise. I don't know that the fact that you go to arbitration or you use mediation should be a stigma. I think it's a, it, like anything else is how you manage risk. And uh, if you do it properly, th then it's beneficial. You, there, there's no enmity that needs to, uh, or bad blood that should be developed or derive from doing these sorts of things. I think if you get mature counsel, you get a mature tribunal to manage, help you manage those risks. Uh, I think uh, you're well off by doing so. So that would mean that when you negotiate these contracts uh, or transactions, you need to be also thinking actively about the sorts of disputes that you can foresee. You can't you can foresee all, but you can foresee a good majority of them. You, you you don't have the exclusive for disputes that arise in a particular sector. It's been it's been done before, I'm sure, in 99% of the time. Uh, aspects of those previous disputes will be present in your dispute. Uh, and so you, you you understand how to, to manage them based on past practices, and you get to see past errors, and how can you foresee some of that to, to understand the sort of clause that you include in your contract. I think we've got the... the Singapore Convention, which I think jurisdictions should be looking to now to consider whether or not they want to sign on to that. 
Uh, I think that would be a worthy, worthy cause. Uh, and it also adds another dimension to the extrajudicial uh, uh, aspects and ability to resolve disputes outside of the uh, of the courts. Having said that, the courts continue to be uh, uh, very have a, a very significant role with respect to the integrity of the alternative dispute resolution mechanisms and the courts should understand their roles and take them seriously uh, and that I think is important also for the integrity of the process. So, uh, you know, uh, I think with that I, I, I'll go begin to enjoy my weekend as you, as you point out. <laughs> And I will give a shout out to uh, to Shan Greer and uh, Nancy Thevenin, you know, good yeah. mutual friends of ours. And yeah. uh, you know, we haven't had Shan on the show yet. We need to, we need to fix that. We need to get her on. Uh, maybe, maybe maybe what we should have is just a group chat. You know, yeah. three of us or four of us throwing ideas around and and just sort of looking for interesting anecdotes about our careers, that some of them might be funny, some not so funny. But I think that's that's also uh, something that would provide uh, or maybe of interest to, to your listeners. I think so too, Calvin. And, um, you know, it's, as there's always these conversations, um, there's li literally nearly not enough time. So what that means is that you'll have to come back another time. Maybe that means right. we'll bring Shan and Nancy. Um, but we appreciate you stopping by the show. Great. And so, Calvin, uh, before we get out of here, do you want to go ahead and sign us off? Well, I'm happy to do so. I'm Calvin Hamilton, and there's no disputing it. You are listening to Tales of the Tribunal. Thank you, and we will see y'all next time. All right. Look, I know we say it at the end of almost every conversation on the show, but this conversation really did feel like it just flew by. It's not just me, right? It was great having Calvin in the studio and we really appreciate him stopping by, even though we know he's got a tight schedule, has many things upcoming, and I can just imagine how tired he may have been. So Calvin, we salute you, sir. Thank you for coming by. And look, we are almost at the end of the season. We have just a couple of more episodes left in the season, and then we'll be on a bit of a hiatus. But we look forward to each and every one of you seeing you as listeners and at conferences here over the next several months. So thank you so much for tuning in. Tell a friend about the show, and we'll see you next week. Tales of the Tribunal is produced by Mo Betta Solutions. Show music is by Joshua and Jaden Campbell. That's it for us this week. Don't forget, there's no disputing it. You're listening to Tales of the Tribunal, where practice meets personality. None of the views shared on today or any episode of Tales of the Tribunal is presented as legal advice nor advice of any kind. No compensation was provided to any person or party for their appearance on the show, nor do any of the statements made represent any particular organization, legal position, or viewpoint. All interviewees appear on an arm's length basis, and their appearances should not be construed as any bias or preferred affiliation with the host or host's employer. All rights reserved.